What's up, everyone? Uh, it's time for another exciting spotlight interview uh, for Deconstructor of Fun. And this one, uh, I have been looking forward to this for weeks uh, because I've brought on uh, one of the best in the biz, James Marr, a very experienced game engineer, technical director, all-around wonderful guy, uh, someone I worked with and alongside for seven years, learned a ton from, am such a better game designer because of him, as well as some of our other partners that we work with. And so uh, really, I just missed James, and I invited him onto the podcast because we live in different states, and it's the only way I get to see my my friends anymore. Uh, but truly, James Marr, one of the uh, uh, most delightful people I've had the opportunity to work with. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be here. And uh, thanks for all those kind words. Uh, some of those were true. <laughs> some of them were true. The, the ones about Hide, those, those were lies. I actually, <laughs> I, sent, <laughs> I sent you a, uh, an article I wrote recently on how to write uh, design documents your engineers won't hate. Um, was I correct there? Or was it, uh, should I have just called it design documents engineers will hate less? <laughs> no, I think I think that the advice in there was was pretty spot on. Yeah, if, um, if you've if you've read that one, I mean, honestly, that uh, uh, little piece tries to encapsulate some of the most important knowledge I learned working with James and working with Hide and all the amazing people on the legendary team, and really um, understanding live ops and and how to design for live operations, and so. That was kind of my my tribute to all my former colleagues uh, uh, at, at Network on the Legendary team. Yeah, I mean, um, I'd say like engineers like good design specs. There's a lot that gets lost when it's just verbal and people are talking about, you know, they have a vision in their head of how it should work. And then they try to express that in words that other people try to interpret and go and implement. Engineers love a solid design document because it removes ambiguity and engineers hate ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, there's, there's kind of the fluffy creative part and then the, what is it actual mean part? And that is the challenge of, of game design. Cause it's like, well, I want this cool thing to happen. Do I understand enough about how computers work to build a system in which said amazing laser boots can, you know, do the cool thing I want them to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me actually, let me start here. Uh, you know, you've been, uh, if I'm remembering correct, you've had titles like uh, technical director, uh, lead engineer, you've done research titles, you've done like head of platform titles. Like you've you've done a lot of different stuff on client, on server, on research, on mm-hmm. game production, on team leadership at, at Zynga, Network, Sony, DNA, it's NGMoco, et cetera. So for people who don't know you as well as I do, can you give us a quick tour of your history and background in game development. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I I knew from a very young you, age. You, James, are a, an anomaly? <laughs> no, I, I didn't know that. You didn't know that about me, that we're two fucking weirdos. Oh, I did know that part. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, but uh, I, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to spend my life making video games. I didn't know how, but I think I was like eight when my friend got a Nintendo and we started playing the first Metroid together. And I was like, this is, this is it. 
this is what I want to do. This is my yeah. calling in life. And it turned out that that was, you know, paired with a real aptitude for math and science and critical thinking that set me up to be a, a game engineer. Um, you know, all, all through my high school years, I was, you know, writing games myself. I taught myself C++ when I was like 12 or 13 from like wow. a teach yourself C++ in 30 days <laughs> book that my mom bought I... from a garage sale. I I actually uh, requested one of those books for Hanukkah one year, one of those like giant C++ books, and it was inscrutable to me. And I did not teach myself to program. So <laughs> we just, there's the fundamental difference between me and you. Same ambitions, but one person could do the thing and one person <laughs> was like, I'm going to watch Transformers now. Anyway, so, uh, you know, high school went to university, got a CS degree. Um, my first job, I was working it with Sony on the PlayStation 3 operating system in a research lab, which was really cool. I worked with some really smart people and kind of it, it pushed me to be really low level in a way that really serviced me for the rest of my career. I was at Apple for a while. I, was, I darted around a little bit after that. But when the iPhone SDK was announced, like I, I immediately, like a lot of people, saw that the phone was going to change the world. So I joined NG Moco really, really early on. They were one of the first Kleiner Perkins funded, dedicated iPhone game startups. Um, worked there for five, six years through their acquisition. Uh, made a lot of great games there, a lot of stuff that I'm really proud of. Um, from Some there, of those included... Oh, yeah. So the first game that I shipped there was called Eliminate. It was the uh, the very first 3D online competitive first-person shooters. Yeah. Uh, another little fun piece of fact, it was actually the very first free-to-play game on the App Store. We were. It was actually the day before we were going to submit the game. And at first, Apple said that it has to be a paid product uh-huh. in order to have in-app purchases. So we had prepared the game as a paid product within app purchase, it was like 99 cents just so that it could be a paid product. Uh, and it was the night before Apple changed their policy. So we were the very first one that submitted and got approved. We also wow. crashed the app store rankings because it turns out <laughs> they had these rankings of like the, the top grossing apps. And it turns out they had a division by the price of the app in that algorithm. What happens when your mm-hmm. price is zero? It, uh, you can't divide by zero. I remember yeah. that piece of math. Yeah, you're, you're, uh, so it took them like three weeks to fix that bug. So the top grossing charts were crashed for three weeks. That was fun. Right. Did that, I forget, did that put you guys in the number one spot? Or we think did, so. We think so. That's really funny. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible, when you think about the success of Fortnite, Call of Duty, Garena Free Fire, like all the, that, that free to play shooters are one of the biggest. Um, most profitable genres in the world right now, like how ahead of its time Eliminate was for being the first free-to-play game, the first 3D mobile shooter, combining those two things, like really a, an incredibly forward-thinking piece of software. Thank you. Um, from there, the company pivoted and we tried to uh, to make a game engine where all of the coding was done in JavaScript. And that ended up leading to DNA, uh, NGMoco getting acquired by the Japanese company DNA. And we tried to push that for a number of years, but uh, Unity just had so much of a head start. 
So the next major mm-hmm. project that I did was um, transitioning that company away from the game engine that we had created that the company got purchased because of and pivoted them away over to Unity. And we made our first Unity game called Hellfire, which was like a card battler collector heavily inspired by Japanese RPGs. And that, that was a very successful It was a really project. successful game, like a really successful uh, gotcha game at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my next major title was at uh, Network. Inc. where I work right now, which was Legendary, the game that you and I worked on. Another pretty successful card battle. Yeah, the the audience has never heard me bring up how (laughs) in 2019 uh, it was publicly stated that Legendary made $250 million. It's been live for over six years. Um, that it's been a, a really successful game. They, they, they. That's news to everyone who listens. I don't bring it up all the time, and it's totally not the basis of all of my self confidence in the world. Same. Yeah. Um, so I, I really specialize in uh, all the products on iPhone. You know, the application store, App Store, and the Google Play Store. Submitting new app binaries takes a while, not users download them right away. So I've really specialized my career in building data-driven systems where the same binary can be remote configured by the server into radically different experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, that is a skill that it's been so interesting to me because I, you know, kind of we're we're very similar in age very similar in how you know how long we've known we've wanted to do game development and um you know share a lot of love for uh the same games on you know hardcore games on console and pc and working in mobile and in free-to-play like for a long time feeling like um the fake game industry Right. Like Mm -hmm. there's the real game industry where they make Mass Effect and Overwatch and uh, Hearthstone and the games we love. And then there's like what we do in free to play live service games on the phones that non gamers play. And it's just been so interesting to me, um, this amazing accident of history that what what you and I do, which live service games has taken over just the entire game industry and like it's it's not not that i mean there are more linear single player uh non-dlc games today than ever Mm -hmm. because of the game engines and because the explosion of game creators and how easy it is to get live but like when you talk about what is the engine of revenue driving the biggest game companies, the public companies, the biggest acquisitions in the world. It's all about live ops and it's all about free to play. And what we do is as much as people gripe about it on blogs, it's the norm. Now it's the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back, there are a lot of great reasons for that, right? We've known for a long time that asking people to plunk down 60, $70 before they try a game to figure out if they like it, that clearly was just an inefficient model. Like it's almost weird that, you know, if you go back to the nineties, almost every major game release also had a demo that you could go and check it out yeah. first. And like, through yeah, I actually, this, two- this is on my desk. I used to love it when PC gamer would come with the CD filled with game demos, right? Like the here I played the single level heroes of might and magic game demo over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, th- there are a lot of reasons why the market needed to make that shift. And part of it was just an explosion of options. You know, mm-hmm. back in the day, PC Mag could go and they could they could review all of the games. 
There were a limited number of right. publishers. There were a limited number of developers. And they could stay on top of it. You just can't do that anymore. There are too many game developers. There are too many options. So the, the price point is just too much of a barrier. And as soon as you say, well, now we're going to do a free-to-play product, suddenly all of these live operations things are just natural consequences of that decision. And mobile just happened to go through that transition first. Yeah. Probably largely, actually, just to ramble a little bit around the destruction of the publisher model. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of what allowed the AAA studios to be so successful is because people had to go to brick and mortar retails. There were all these places where they could advertise their product, which kind of artificially made it seem like there were less choices than there really were. But suddenly when you're on these digital only market places with companies like Apple and Google that they kind of care, but they don't really care who the publisher is. Right. And yeah, you and I have both worked for Neil uh, young who and and a number of different like EA executives and executives who have been in the industry and had success for a long time and they can tell stories about how important like end cap marketing displays were at Best mm-hmm. Buy to the success of a product like Madden or um, Medal of Honor and that that sort of like ownership of a marketing channel which you know as like a hardcore gamer nerd in my teens, like I didn't think about that ever, but like marketing has always played a big part in distribution and and it's just, you know, Best Buy doesn't matter anymore to the um, success or failure of a game. Um, we're, We're here to talk mainly, I wanted to, you know, something I've never sat down with you and talked about before, which is kind of a giant failing for the seven years we spent working together, the main topic is like what makes for a great game engineer. Um, But before we jump into that, um, I want to acknowledge the disservice I did of scheduling this interview on the day that Dwarf Fortress uh, finally (laughs) came out and took its rightful place as the number one game on Steam instantly. I know you're a huge fan of uh, Dwarf Fortress. Huge, huge fan. There there are a few pieces of software in the world that genuinely mystify me they they are Mm -hmm. just baffling and a piece of impressiveness that blows me away and dwarf fortress is on that very short list what um i i have to admit it's too hardcore for me i haven't ever jumped in what is it about when you when you say that this piece of software mystifies you why does it mystify you what's so special about not just the gameplay but the actual software of it yeah like for the longest time you know door fortress was one of the most uh taxing pieces of software that you could run on your computer and its Mm -hmm. graphics were literally ascii right right what what makes it impressive is just the sheer complexity of the simulation that's going on under the hood both like structural dynamics random generation of dwarfs behaviors like dwarfs form certain memories and write poems on the walls based upon their experiences. Like it's nuts. And the, the reason that, that I find it so mystifying is that the simulation is stable, right? A lot of times mm-hmm. when you get these really complicated simulations, they fall over or things don't work out the way that you, that you expect. So Dwarf Fortress is both an incredibly complicated simulation and a very stable simulation. Got it. When you describe it that way, it sounds like they're building Westworld. But uh, hopefully season two will make some sense of Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> hopefully. 
instead of a descent into just gobbledygook. Um, all right. So, um, let's, let's go here. Let's start here. Mm -hmm. Um, if I were to give you a terrible character of what a game engineer's day is like, of what the game engineer's job is like, it would look like pop a bag of Doritos, pound a 12 pack of Mountain Dew, put on your blue tinted shades, enter the matrix and code straight for 12 hours without talking to a single human. Um, now I know from working in games for 20 years, that's not, that's not what it's like, right? Like what is the job of a game engineer actually? Yeah, that, that was pretty inaccurate. Really all we do is browse Reddit while we wait for our code to compile. <laughs> I've actually learned that because I've been coding for almost seven days straight now. That's, hey. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll prefix this by saying that, uh, COVID and work from home has really changed the day-to-day -day of a game engineer. But when I think about what a, a game engineer does on a daily basis, it's broadly broken down into four main types of work. The first work is kind of what you described. That is the building stuff. That is the Mountain the, Dew phase. <laughs> the Mountain Dew phase. You know what you're building. You put on headphones. You're coding. You're iteratively. You try stuff. It doesn't work. You go back. It's just a lot of like rinse and repeat, just like loop, loop, loop. Mm -hmm. But there's another really important phase that I think a lot of people don't really have a good conception of that happens before that. And that's the technical planning phase. And in that phase of work, you're actually doing a lot of pacing around the room and thinking. You are mm -hmm. going back and looking at old code in the game, right? You, you have a task that you need to accomplish and you're trying to put together a plan in your head of how you're going to approach it. So you do a lot of research you are reading blog posts on similar algorithms. Like there's this long phase of just coming up with an idea of how you're going to approach it before you transition to the next phase of actually doing it. The final one is once you've, or the third one is once you've done all that work of building it, then you have to debug it. And the, the QA process in debugging is a very distinct phase of work. It's no longer uh, focused long-term thinking. Now suddenly you have this deluge of random bugs that are filed from your QA department. You're in Jira, you're going through you know, bug after bug after bug, constantly context switching. What's going on here? Is this a bug? Is this a code bug? Is this a data bug? Is this a, just a testing methodology bug? And that's a really distinct phase. Mm -hmm. And the, the final phase is kind of the, the coordination or communicating with the rest of your team. And that can take a lot of different appearances. That can be talking to people on Slack, answering a message that somebody sent you. That can be sitting in you know, a, a synchronous meeting, talking with other people. And the reality is, game engineer, you, you're never operating for long periods of time in any one of those. Most likely mm -hmm. over the course of the day, you're context switching between several of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I, that's a really uh, wonderful and succinct um, description. And when you talk about the technical planning phase, um, and, and I've got a couple questions about this, uh, later, mm -hmm. but just that, um, as I've been actually doing hands-on prototyping for the first time in years, um, and writing articles about the design process, it actually makes me appreciate, you know, how much I grew as a designer working at network because of my opportunity to sit in on those technical planning discussions. Mm. and to participate in them 
And that like, I mean, literally I did read a design doc I wrote 12 years ago the other day. Like I found it when I was searching uh-huh. for somebody in email. I was like, this is garbage. This is like, un- this is really um, hard to work with. And um, having kind of watched what great looks like um, in technical planning and doing my version of like good technical planning, I'm like, you know, I acceptable. It It's just made me a better designer, to be honest, mm-hmm. because I'm thinking through things, um, not just how I want the player to experience them, but how the different systems fit together, right? That, that appreciation mm-hmm. for like, really where the hard work of, um, of an engineer is a lot of the hard work from my observation seems to be in that technical planning phase. A hundred percent. And then, you know, whether you do that phase well or poorly, I think really determines the long-term success of the product, right? Games that didn't have enough early planning put into the architecture and the systems design those are the products that end up crippling under technical debt, bugs that are difficult to track down, systems that don't compose in the ways that you expect them to. Um, yeah, because, I mean, like, when you're talking about a game that's live six, seven, ten years, where it might be that not a single person who was in that kind of... You might have a bug in a system that nobody who worked on it is at the company or on the team anymore. Like, mm-hmm. uh, y- your ability to continue operating something like that, I imagine is largely, um, uh, an output of how much of that upfront effort you did. This podcast is brought to you by Google for games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for games, or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for games. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Um, 
Um, explain to you, what do you mean by um, if systems compose the way you think they will? Mm-hmm. So especially free play games, you end up with a lot of different systems. You might have a leaderboard system. You might have a player identity system. You might have a quest system. You might have an offer purchase system. And all those have rules of kind of like how they work uh, individually. But what happens when you tap on a leaderboard to go to a player's profile and then purchase an offer from their profile page that should complete a quest? Suddenly, mm-hmm. we've just taken those four different systems and we've threaded them all together. And it's really easy if you're not thinking about how your systems interact with each other to accidentally have a bug where we'll actually the notion of a player that we got from the leaderboard where the user clicked is different than a full profile if we fetch it from the server. So when we go to do the purchase, it's expecting to find data there that isn't there because the profile came from a leaderboard, those sorts of bugs and composition problems. Right. And, and I know, you know, when, um, because again of this world of live ops of launching MVPs that you built in nine, 11 months, and then adding and adding to them for years, um, I imagine some of the challenges you might be in a scenario where, uh, the leaderboard system was written in say month nine and the player profile system was designed and written in month 18 and the offer system in month 24. And so like, it's not, um, it's not the same process as when you're sitting down having a long planning phase and then a long execution phase, because it's just a Mm -hmm. constant, as you said, switching between those four um, phases on an hourly basis, right? And a really interesting thing that happens when you think about, you know, years and years of development is later on in the project's life, you end up building a lot of convenience, a lot of tools, a lot of extra capability that your game engine just wasn't capable of early on. And a lot of times you'll look back at some of the earlier systems that you designed and you're like, wow, we could do this a hundred times better. Now that we have another year of development, we've built up the scaffolding of what our, what our game is capable of doing. Can you give me, um, as kind of the, the dumb designer, like a, 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 an anecdote or a version of, of what that might mean, or of, uh, of having something convenient that you didn't have and how that makes you better uh, a year later, two years later? Yeah, I can use a, a concrete example um, in a game that I'm working on right now. We built a, really early on in the project, we built a reward sequence that had kind of like a leaderboard and you animated and you saw yourself like scrolling up the leaderboard to your position of what your final score was. Mm-hmm. And it was really early on in the project. So we didn't have much infrastructure in place for running those types of animations. So we ended up writing just a big block of ugly, nasty spaghetti code that handled all of that. Took you know weeks to, to set all that up and debug it and get it stable. And it's really hard to iterate on. Fast forward a year and a half later, and we have a handful of simple components that we can just slap on that automates all of those things that we had to hard code and and manually write. Got it. So, you know, so something like that might have started with uh, someone like me in this. I know in this instance, it wasn't me. I I haven't worked on the game yet. (laughs) The unnamed game that you're working on, uh, I'd, I'd moved on to Tetris Land. But what might start as a conversation that goes like, 
okay, and then you win the battle, and after the battle, there's a leaderboard, and it goes, ding, right? Like, it might have taken someone weeks to write the, all the actions behind making ding feel good and look good and have the sparkles and be rewarding. And um, as someone who doesn't look at the code... I don't care what it looks like underneath. Players don't care what it looks like underneath. And, and what you're saying is a year later, you might have, you know, uh, now this is going to be dumb, but like animate up, switch positions, shoot sparkles, shoot more sparkles, sheen the screen. Each one of those is like a little composable Lego block. And theoretically, you could replace all that garbage with the good stuff. Um now I know how often do you get into scenarios where you, where you you're fighting exactly. you're mentally as kind of like a, a an engineering leader and a team leader fighting between let's make this thing more stable and bug free versus let's work on the new thing like how how often do you know that you can fix spaghetti code or refat like wh- what is that problem set like even because I imagine it's a near constant daily battle between do we patch the bug or do we fix it for real because we have better tools now? Yeah, so the strategy that I always use is if you're not adding major new capability to a system, don't rewrite it. Mm. Just patch it up. Just get that pony across the finish line, whatever it takes. The opportunity to come back and legitimately clean up spaghetti code is when somebody wants to add a big new capability to the system. And you know that you have to make sweeping structural changes anyway. So mm. that's the right time to rip off the Band-Aid. Got it. Yeah, and it, I, I listen to people talk about filmmaking a lot, and there's kind of a phrase of like, put the money on the screen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you putting your effort and your money into something that the end player can see or something, you know, like painting the back of a set is a good example, right? If somebody never sees it, you just wasted money to make something look good from the wrong angle. And so I imagine that fixing old code or fixing spaghetti code um, is a lot about that fight to put the money on the screen, right? If you refactor something into that works into something that still works and looks exactly the same, um, you haven't made the player's life any different. Exactly. And I, I will say there's one caveat to what I'll, what you just said that I'd like to add that I think a lot of times as game developers, we only think of our players as the consumers of what we build. But I think it's really important to value your internal tools and think about your development team. Because sometimes it is worth it to spend development resources cleaning up an internal tool if it's you know, a, a really cumbersome setup for your artists, or it's a really long iteration time for your designers, that's another opportunity where it is worth coming back and cleaning things up if you can substantially make those people's lives better. And that, that that's really about viewing your designers and your artists as just as much customers of the software that you write as your user, as your players. Yeah, absolutely. So like, if, if uh, I understand you correctly, let's say... Um, Let's say you're making a game where uh, building skills is an essential part of the game, like it was on Legendary, um, mm-hmm. which was releasing five or more new heroes every week, each with their own skills, right? Like, if if somebody spends a week 
um, uh, improving the tool set in a way that saves 10 minutes for every product manager every day for the next year, that's an incredibly powerful investment, right? Precisely. Is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of uh, viewing? Exactly. Spot on. Like these are live service games and our ability to iterate quickly as the creators of the software is unbelievably valuable because there's more work to be done than there are hours in the day. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I thought would be really interesting um, in talking to you and talking to a real expert in the space is to think about the difference between good and great. Right. Mm -hmm. Because for me as a producer or designer, there are, there are certain things that I'm probably not really able to understand in terms of, um, the difference between someone, you know, someone good and solid and someone who's truly great. And I thought it would be really interesting to dig into that. So like, if we think about a good engineer, someone rock solid, someone you're happy to work with. Um, but you wouldn't consider, you wouldn't say like, if I started a new company, this is the first person I have to hire. More like mm -hmm. this is, you know, the, the, someone who's not a Hide, but more of an Ethan. Someone who's like happy to work with them, good work person, always additive, not, not the best, but good, really solid, right? Like what mm -hmm. are, what in terms of in an engineer, what are those traits that make someone good and someone you'll always be happy to work with. Yeah. Uh, for me, probably the biggest thing is how people communicate about the work that they're doing. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of times as engineers, we wade into uncertain waters and they're really, there's a range of different behaviors of what you do when you get into that situation. Uh, some people just silently spin their wheels and drift off, but good engineers will raise their hand, they'll ask for help, they'll tell their engineering lead, hey, I don't know how to accomplish this, or I'm running into difficult problems, right? And that, that self-awareness of what you know and what you don't know and the ability to communicate that and share that with the team is incredibly important because that prevents a lot of other nasty downstream problems, right? People who just spin their tires and brute force it when they really don't know what they're doing a lot of times the end result will be pretty trashy. It'll be horribly inefficient or it will miss large portions of the requirements that allow that require the whole system to be to be tossed out. So a good engineer is somebody that uh, I have a high degree of confidence that I can ask them to work on something and they'll either deliver a pretty good version of that or they'll ask help raise the issue. Got it. Um, and you know it, I, what I what I love about that explanation is it um, we or that description is um, in game development all of us are always solving new problems all the time, right? Like it's very rare to be uh, to get a task and to know exactly how to do it from almost any discipline, like unless you're doing something that's part of kind of like a rinse repeat um, content treadmill cycle. But like I'm listening to Cliffy B's um, autobiography right now. I'm near the end on, on his Lawbreakers game. And it's like, you know, 
the guy who was the creative leader on a number of Unreal Tournament games, a number of Gears of War games, you know, worked on so many of the like foundational shooter games in our industry. And then he gets to his own studio and a new multiplayer shooter game. And he is solving new problems he's never experienced before. And everyone in his studio is. And that's, that's like the joy and the bliss of game development. And so um, what's great about that explanation is it's not, it's not that a good engineer is someone who can solve every problem, but you said an engineer can communicate when they don't know how to solve. They can ask for help. Yeah. And so as a leader that gives you trust in that person. Now, if I were to take it to the next level, what makes it someone great? What makes someone a, if I'm starting a new game team, this is my first person I'm going to try and hire. Or if I'm starting a new studio or like this person is someone who left for another opportunity and I'm always wishing I could work with them again. Like what, what is the difference maker between that good and that great? Yeah, I think a great engineer, uh, coming back to our previous example of, you know, here, here, here's a problem that I don't necessarily know how to solve. A great engineer won't just go and solve a problem. They'll be looking at the entire software package. They'll be looking at the product kind of holistically, and they might come back and say, actually, this was the wrong problem to solve, or we should change the way that we're approaching this to integrate this other system. They're not just heads down doing a task. They're thinking about how that task relates to and fits into the broader picture and actually making recommendations and asking for, for the work that they're doing to be modified. So that, that's the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is having, you know, we work with really amazing game engines, right? Unity and Unreal and Godot, all those engines are freaking incredible. But great engineers have an understanding of how things are working underneath the hood. And in fact, that they are uncomfortable using a subsystem or a feature if they don't have a rough understanding of what's going on underneath the hood. And that's really important because once you start thinking about optimization or you're trying to debug a weird problem, great engineers that have a good working mental model of more or less what's happening underneath the hood with the high levels of abstraction that they're working with allows you to use those abstractions more effectively. Got it. Yeah. So that, that instantly makes me think to times where you've been, where I've heard you say uh, things in, in the realm of like, well, uh, we investigated this and, and Shu and I looked into it or Calvin and I or Ron, you know, we've been looking, we've been looking into this bug that we can't figure out. And we went on the forums and we emailed Unity's people. And what happened was, and then I kind of gloss over here and it's like, <laughs> we were in version 2014.a.7 slash B of Unity. And we were expecting the text renderer to operate in this way. And in my mind, I'm like, aren't we debugging a, a, a crash bug in, in the battle engine? You're like, and this text rendering bug did X and Y and Z. And so now we need to upgrade the entire team to this version because of this weird thing that we found. Right? You're still Is sore that... over that, aren't you? What? You're still sore over that, aren't I'm you? I'm still sore <laughs> over <laughs> I'm that one. You're like, actually, it was 14.f2. Um, but yeah, like, 
so it's um that's that uh that makes if if i'm understanding it correctly um looking at the package it's it's one not focusing on checking items off the task list but having a full and complete picture of everything that the game is doing so that you can come up with the best solutions to the problem. Not even, you said something really interesting. It's not just the best, it's solving the right problem. Yeah. And then two, you know, the thing that differentiates the guy who taught himself C++ from the book and the guy who gave up and watched Transformers <laughs> is the deep, low-level knowledge of what's actually happening um, in your engine, in your server code, in your services that you're working with um, to solve the real, real problems, right? Exactly. Like a, honestly, a, a level of understanding that I, as someone who can script in a game engine, I, you know, I'll never get there. I'm just, it would take me too long of study to change what I know into that level of depth. You know, a great way to look at it is, uh, you know, the lowest level programming language assembly, right? Mm -hmm. Very, f almost no games are written in assembly anymore, but I highly recommend that every seasoned game engineer should learn assembly by going through and understanding the lowest level of what's actually happening. It will allow you to use every other programming language in the world better because you'll have mm -hmm. an understanding of what's actually happening at the lowest level. And when you're writing some high-level Python code, you have a good model of how that's translating through the various layers all the way down to the instructions that are going to the CPU. Got it. Because, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like a language is just a way to get to those ones and zeros that I don't understand at all, right? Like they're all, I'm, <laughs> this is, now I'm like exactly. so far off a ledge that I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> Keep going, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> What it makes me think is like uh, learning to code and assembly is probably the engineering equivalent of, I would say, like, if you want to be a game designer, start with board games and card games, yes. except board games and card games are like 10 times easier. Like I can teach literally my four-year-old to make a board game and he can design a game. Um, whereas I uh, is learning to make things in assembly the hardest way to make things. Yes. yes. Well, okay. Th there are some weird <laughs> esoteric things. There's this programming language called BrainFuck, <laughs> which is intentionally is designed. Real? Yeah, you can look it up. It's absolutely insane. It was this designed isn't just to a be... poem that a dwarf wrote in Dwarf Fortress? <laughs> it's designed to be as adversarial and difficult to use as possible. Oh, it's the Ethan Levy of programming languages. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fun really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. 
It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Let's pause this podcast for a moment because I need to talk to you. That's right, you. Are you ready? Good. So, you're an indie game developer and you need funding to help you launch and market your game. No problem, right? There should be one place where you can get funding and resources, but there really hasn't been one until now. Our friends at Exola have launched Exola Funding Club, which you should check out ASAP. Exola Funding Club is matchmaking service for developers, investment firms, and groups, as well as video game publishers. They have a simple process. Developers apply to join the funding club. Once they're accepted, their applications are sent directly to interested investors looking to invest into video games, games just like yours. It's a win-win situation. Qualified developers get their game pitches placed in front of funding sources, while investors discover curated games that meet their criteria for the investment portfolio. Ready to get started? Just head over to exola.pro funding, or find the link in the episode description and apply today. Exola Funding Club, putting the fun back in funding. I think when we think of what makes a <laughs> a great game engineer. Um, I think when we think of what makes a great game engineer, a lot of times we think about the hard skills, right? Mm -hmm. Like to go back to um, my caricature earlier, or like the movie grandma's boy, right? And like the, the guy who pretends he's in the matrix and uh, codes alone in a room in a black trench coat. Um, you know, we think about a great game engineer and we think about hard skills. We think about, I mean, I remember you telling me like your mom used to teach you, uh, what was it? Calculus in the bathtub or mm-hmm. something crazy like that. It was calculus in the bathtub. Uh, you're just bet you're better at math than I'll ever be. You can program <laughs> a thing in assembly, right? Like these are the hard skills. So like, what are, um, what are some of the hard skills that, are critical to a game engineer's success? I mean, we've talked on some already. Um, I'll say that debugging, understanding how to effectively debug something is an undervalued skill. It's a very Mm -hmm. distinctive mindset um, of critically thinking there is a problem. We've stared at the code and we aren't seeing it. What unexpected things are happening that is causing this not to work the way that we expect. It's, it's a very unusual type of critical thinking, but that's an, another one that's really important uh, for engineers. 
Got it. And some of the other ones we've talked about are understanding the low level, um, understanding the holistic piece of software, being good at math, uh, understanding the game engine. Um, talk to me about algorithms. I know I've heard you say before, like, uh, part of my specialty, part of my skill set is is uh, designing the algorithms. Like, what is what does that mean? Yeah. Um, to understand algorithms, and I'm sure this will be boring to, to a lot of your listeners, but I just need to really quickly give the blurb of why this is important. So let's say that I give you a list of 100 numbers. They're random numbers in the random order. And I tell you to go and sort those ascending to descending. And that's going to take you a certain amount of time. It's going to take the CPU a certain amount of time. And we'll just call that time X seconds. If I double the size of that array, how much longer does it take you to sort it? Well, my uh, uh, Twitch brain says it takes twice as long. <laughs> and this is where algorithms come in. It actually turns out it's not twice as long. It's actually longer for most mm. sort algorithms. And this is where the different sort algorithm will take a different amount of time, a different amount of extra time. So algorithms is all about um, understanding how your code is going to behave as the data size gets larger and larger. Mm. You know, I can build a store and I'm a na naive coder and it works great for 10 items. But when I go to 1,000 items, suddenly the frame rate drops and it's completely unplayable. It takes forever to load. So that's where algorithms come in, is thinking about how the behavior of your software will behave under stressful inputs. Mm. Yeah, and this is where it's fun to be having this conversation with somebody I worked with for a long time because... Um, I'm almost certain we've had a conversation that goes something like, um, just so you know, the maximum number of heroes, a per if we do this, if we make this decision, the maximum number of heroes a person can ever own is 400, says James. And Ethan goes, oh, that's fine. Like, we'll never be in a situation where somebody needs to own more than 400 heroes. And if we do, we'll solve it when we get there, you know, and then cut to the obvious thing 18 months later. Um, yeah, so like all of our highest spending players own 400 heroes and it's crashing the game and our revenue is broken today. Um, and you said this would never happen, Ethan. It's like a shruggy shoulder, right? Exactly. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the sort of, uh, of problem that that we run into all the time and it's that forward thinking um algorithmic understanding uh to be able to see to those things and argue for what's right and uh then be graceful with someone who said something stupid on the other end when uh but i will say on the flip side you know a, a real problem in engineers is in engineering is premature optimization you spend a lot of time on your algorithms to be able to scale to a huge number of items. But Ethan was right. Players will never own more than 400 players. And those two weeks you spent coming up with that beautiful algorithm that can scale to millions of heroes was just wasted time. 
Right. So we can we can kind of put that one again in in that bucket of difference between good and great is kind of the innate understanding of where it's important to put the effort and where you can safely cut corners and, and make things easier. Which is really just a soft skill of judging uh, when your designers are liars or not. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, trick trick question. Your designers are always liars. <laughs> I want to touch on the soft skills um, part mm-hmm. of it because I think that is actually, I imagine, a big part of the difference between good and great is not in who is better at differential equations or some eigenvalues or some other term that I vaguely remember from that class I got a C in and then dropped out of CS school. But I'm impressed, man. Those are two <laughs> great terms to just pull out of your hiney. I studied for this for the no. <laughs> um, but it's actually the soft skills I imagine is a big part of the difference between good and great. Um, do you mm-hmm. agree with that? No, I, I absolutely agree. Like being bad at the soft skills is one of the things that can really cap an engineer's career. Right. And so we're probably talking about, uh, you know, communicating and compromising with engineers, with artists, with management, with designers, QA people, um, mm-hmm. what, what else is kind of in the bucket of like underappreciated um, skills for great engineers to have? I actually have a really succinct answer for this one. And it's putting yourself in the shoes of the person that you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Like on a project, pretty much invariably, with a few exceptions, engineers are probably going to have the deepest and most broadest understanding of what's really going on. And it can be really easy as an engineer to accidentally start talking techno gobbledygook to somebody. So a really important skill is to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're talking to. What's their level of understanding and what do they actually care about? Using that as a lens to craft the way that you communicate to them, to put things at the right level of technicality and to also focus on the things that actually impact the the goals and desires of the person you're talking to. If I can um, steal a term from Kevin Hart from his great podcast, this is the perfect opportunity for me to give you some flowers. Um, something I've I've always been impressed with in our time working together was your communication skills and that empathy. Like what you're saying is empathy is the secret superpower of a great engineer, right? And um, that's something I think you've always been great at. Um, and it's part of why when I say like, I'm a better designer because I worked with you, it's because of your communication skills and, and explaining things to me in a way I can understand so that we can solve problems together. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other soft skill that I, that I wanted to bring up that I also think is underappreciated is giving other people room to talk and explore ideas. Like en- engineers, not to stereotype, but we tend to be pretty logical. And a lot of us have pretty high degrees of self-confidence because we feel so capable on the team. And it's really important to let other people on the team explore ideas, to say things that might be a, a dead end and not to be overly critical and negative and give ideas opportunity to breathe. Hmm. Does it happen a lot um, that 
you know, in our like there's kind of the the fast twitch and the soft the the, the like fast part of the brain and the slow part of the brain, right? The thinking fast and slow uh, book that I vaguely remember most of. Mm-hmm. Um, where you know, a lot of times in a design me, this was a, a a skill that took me a long time to develop, and I'm still not great at it. Was um, when another designer, or product manager, or engineer, you know, anybody who's I'm collaborating with has a design idea, and the fast part of my brain goes. No, that's dumb. That's dumb for X, Y, Z. And you immediately jump to all these reasons to just immediately dismiss it out of hand. Mm-hmm. And and what I'm hearing is that the uh, part of the great skill of being a collaborator is filtering that part of your brain, not saying no right away, even if it was you know even if thirty minutes later you find it was right. Or an hour later, you find it was right. Because a lot of times, in my experience on design, I'll find it was wrong. And the other person had a great justification for what they were going to do. And because I didn't, because I had some self-control in that instance, we get to a better solution. And going one step further, it's actually more than just the solution that you come to in the moment. Another thing that I think people don't spend enough time really thinking about is the interpersonal relationships within team members, the power mm-hmm. dynamics and the reputation and the expectation. When I go and talk to this person, how are they going to respond to me? So pushing aside that fast twitch reflex to say no um, gives the other person more agency. They feel like you're a collaborative partner rather than somebody who's shooting them down. They'll be more likely to come to you when they have a problem. You'll have better rapport between them. It really helps build team cohesion and prevents there from being these unspoken schisms of the team. You know, Alice doesn't talk to Bill because they don't get along because they had that one conversation where Alice shat all over uh, Bob's ideas. And even though Alice was right, Bob still has a grudge. Right. So again, in that in that soft soft skill bucket, in terms of being a great leader, um, uh, it's it's about uh, creating a safe space for people to do their work, to talk out loud, to solve their problems, to propose solutions. Um, it's not just about who can write the most most efficient lines of code the fastest, but actually things like, um, am I in the way I'm responding to a person today, setting, making them feel comfortable that they can have the same discussion with me seven years from now, eight years from now, 10 years from now? Because, mm-hmm. you know, that sounds like a little... It could sound ridiculous, but I know you're working with people you've worked with for 10 years or more. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the guy I used to work with, Chris Jemison, good friend, awesome engineer. Uh, and he always, his favorite catchphrase is technology is easy. People are hard. Mm-hmm. And I really took that to heart. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things... Uh, I, I've seen you lead some really great 
uh, technical design and architecture meetings. I, I talked about it before. Like, I mean, literally there was, um, uh, uh, on the raid boss feature in legendary, mm-hmm. I just sat in a room for a week, week and a half for, I think two hours every day, just taking notes. Um, and that helped me understand a system. And I really just watched you and the other uh, people on the team, on the engineering team work. And I had, I can, I, I, that might've been the first time I'd been in a technical design meeting like that. Um, and obviously it made an impression because I still think about it today. Um, and, and as you said, uh, at the start, and when you talked about the phases, right, like we think a lot, or I think a lot about the execution phase and not a lot about the technical planning phase. And that one is super critical for all the reasons you've talked about. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what goes into leading that sort of technical design um, and architecture meeting, right? How can you, like, what are, what are the types of things that, you know, producer person, designer person doesn't really think about, about what it takes to sit down with 12 very smart, capable technical people and come up with the tricky, technical, elegant, composable technical solution to these problems. Yeah. So this is going to end up touching on a lot of the soft skills that we've already talked about, but I've, I've been on projects where the technical lead bangs out a plan and says, I read the design doc. Here's how we're going to do it. Somebody else, you know, you're a coding machine, go turn the knob. The reason I don't like that model is for two reasons. First, however smart an individual person is, they haven't written the entire application. And those other engineers that you're in the room with doing the technical design, they probably know aspects of the software that, you know, no one person owns it all. So as you're going through a group technical design, somebody would raise their hand and say, actually, we can't do that because that system has this restriction that not very many people are aware of. So it helps make sure that you um, have all the eyeballs of everybody who knows how the software works when you're coming up with ideas about how to change it. The next one is about uh, buy-in. When the engineering team has sat down and you, you all read the design document together. You make sure that everybody understands what you're trying to accomplish. When engineers had a chance to say, well, what if we do it this way? Put that up on the whiteboard. What if we do it this way? Put that up on the whiteboard, right? Gather those ideas and then start talking about the strengths and weaknesses of all of them. Suddenly everyone in the room Feel, feel like they got to throw out an idea of how to approach it. And as a group, they discussed the merits of it. And the final direction that you choose, in my experience, people are uh, much more excited and engaged to go and build that feature because they have a sense of contribution towards the direction of what they were building. It also means that the person who ends up picking up the task to actually implement it, it's not they're not just being handed uh, a document that says, here's what you need to do. They were in the room and they understand why we're doing it that way. They understand that this one little weird technical choice you made here was carefully crafted to work around restrictions in this system and a nasty bug in this system that nobody wants to fix. 
right? They have all of that context in their head when they go to start writing the code. Got it. So it, it, it feels like, um, again, to like empathy, listening, making a safe space, all these things you might not think about when you think about engineering, you know, as like this hard, mathy, logical thing is um, that first example of, you know, let's just call it pure waterfall. And I've been on pure waterfall projects. I've, you know, written a 150 page document that goes to China, right? That like you have Mm -hmm. to write specifically because the end user won't have, you can't write it for a native English speaker, right? Like I've done that. And when you do that, you can pick up a lot of bad habits, right? Because that way of working works when you have kind of like a finish line project that you hit the finish line and you're done. And uh, there are almost no software projects today that are finish line projects, right? Like Vampire Survivors is a massive success and it's a single player game it's not a finish line project. It's an early access project. It's a put it out there and grow and grow and grow and grow. Like all software is living now. Um, and so what your answer makes me think is that um, a lot about leading great um, great technical design meetings and just being a technical leader is not about the most logical, most efficient solution. It's about factoring in all these things and all these team dynamics and kind of managing for the long-term health of your team and your software. Well said. One, one thing that I think there's more of an embrace of now versus kind of when you and I were more starting our careers, um, is for a long time, I think there was an impression that like two get more senior in terms of rank, in terms of responsibility, and in terms of pay, you had to you had to make this like awful transition from being a contributor to a manager. And now I think there's more acceptance of that you need both people at really both types of people at really senior levels that someone can choose to be, uh, an engineering manager. They can choose to be the best coder. They can choose to be just a super senior um, individual contributor, right? Like you can position your, that there's, um, that you don't have to be a middle manager to be more successful in your career, right? Like these are two completely different skill sets and not everybody can move back and forth between them. And not everybody wants to tackle them. Yeah, I think that it's worth trying. Uh, I know personally, I've I've held positions where I had much more management responsibility. I've had multiple teams reporting to me, and I didn't like it. I was all right at it, but I didn't mm-hmm. like it. I like leading a single game team, and I'm really good at it. Like the the advice, it can be difficult. It's like you were saying. There, there's this expectation that there's a linear track of your career going up and it revolves going into management. And I think a lot of people aren't used to saying no to opportunities. Now, mm-hmm. Hey, do you want to be the, the leader of this team? 
the, the shared tools team that we're starting up, it needs somebody to lead it. Do you want to lead it? It can be hard to say no to that. But in a lot of ways, you know, there's, I've seen, I see a lot of engineers uh, hit the Peter principle, right? They just keep mm -hmm. saying yes to promotion, to promotion, to promotion. And suddenly they're a fantastic engineer and a shitty VP of engineering. And then they, once you hit that role, it can be a difficult ego thing for people to say, I'm going to take a, a, a quote unquote, less impressive title. Yeah. And I like, I mean, it, it, there were many structural things about network. Um, I mean, you're still there. I'm now like, you know, a person in a closet podcasting and, and building my own game studio from scratch. There are many things I look to um, from that experience and, and trying not to focus on titles the way that like, you know, at EA, when I became producer one, right? When I wasn't associate producer three anymore, but I was producer one, I was super excited by that bump. And like network, um, I think that there was not so much a focus on titles and there still isn't. And that allows for people to try things. Um, and it sounds like, you know, it, like the hardest thing in the world to recruit is a skilled game engineer. I mean, in, in a game team, like, let, like, if you just if you just look at the dollars and cents, I think the most expensive um, uh, uh, class of people to recruit, to hire, to retain is engineers because you can't build a game without. No matter how good you near Unreal is, you can't build a game without them. Uh, there's a high hard skill barrier. There's mm -hmm. there's a shortage of them. Right? There's just not enough great game engineers. So, um, why would you want to turn? a great game engineer into a bad people manager. Like what purpose does that serve? Um, and questions for the ages. <laughs> yeah. And what I'm hearing from your answer is that for an individual, it's important to find what brings you joy and fulfillment in your career and to follow that. Yes. Um, what, um, Something I think about a lot and write about a lot is um, how can I, as a game designer, best set my engineering team and my engineering collaborators up for success? Um, so I'll start with, with the design. Uh, I'll, I'll lump design and product management together here because they're kind of um, uh, sibling job families, I'd say. Um, how, how can people doing these jobs best collaborate with and best set their people, their, their engineer partners up for success? Yeah, this is one of those things. People are hard, so every team is going to be different. So the first mm -hmm. thing is spend the time to actually listen to your engineering team, figure out how Sorry, they want to work. That? I was checking my notifications. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was... It's too easy. You were saying, I, <laughs> yeah. this is why um, our meetings took four times as long as they should have <laughs> because of my bad jokes. Uh, right. But, uh, listen to how your engineering team wants to work because every engineering team, I mean, every group of people is going to be different. So there's no one size fits all. Um, talking a little bit more on the game design side, I think there's a lot of value from 
even if you're not a technical designer, spending a little bit of time trying to get a mental model of how the game works. What are the major systems? How do they relate to each other? Because that'll really inform when you're coming up with a design, you can start to speak the right language. I want to make a modification to this existing system like this, and I want to connect it to a new system that we want to build. That immediately helps engineers get on the same page in terms of how you're thinking about what, what needs to be built. Uh, there are other like nuts and bolts ones, like think through all the edge conditions, all the error conditions. Like a lot of designer design documents don't have that. And you get, you know, eyeball deep into implementation, then but what happens if the name is taken? Well, suddenly that nice flow that you designed doesn't work right. anymore because it doesn't deal with that error case. Yeah. And especially when um, something I've learned over time is that um, a lot of the effort to do something can end up going into the thing that seems least important and like it'll never happen. But it like takes, you know, 40% of the total effort of the feature is on weird shit that you don't care about or you don't care about at first. Which comes to another really great thing to do in design documents, which is try to actually stack rake all of the internal bits and pieces. Call out the weird little feature that's like, it's a nice to have, but it's not critical to the system holding together. Because that might be clear to you, but that might not be clear to engineers. And being more clear about that will make it easier one, if schedule becomes an issue and start running behind. You actually have a, an obvious swath of the feature that could actually be removed and it would still be a functional so piece of software. Mm -hmm. And what about on the production and, and uh, development director or product project manager side? Like what are some of the, I think this is one of the places and it's been a challenge for me throughout my career. Like, at, when I've been in those roles, like this is a lot of the friction can come from the types of challenges that a producer or project manager is trying to balance out. And you've been both an engineering leader and a production leader, right? So this yeah. is something you have um, firsthand knowledge on on both sides. So like, what are some of the bad habits or most toxic that like, what are some of the behaviors for a person like me to avoid? Um, in terms of working with my, my engineering partners? Yeah. Um, I think most of those kind of that animosity will be built around, will come up from schedule. And it will come from uh, engineering team gives an estimate, turns out to be wrong. Development director or PM or somebody comes and, well, why is it late? Why didn't you do the thing you said you were going to do in the time that you said you would do it? And it ends up turning into this really toxic finger pointing, basically insinuating that the engineering team is lazy. Mm -hmm. They're not putting the hard hours or they're not focused enough. They're missing their deadlines. Um, and once you start going down that route, it can be really hard to repair those types of relationships. And like the, the fact of the matter is, if you're a really good engineer, there are other industries where you could make a lot more money than the gaming industry. Mm -hmm. Engineers that are in the gaming industry are in the gaming industry because they love games. They love what they're doing. 
they are not here because they're lazy. I mean, most other industries, if you're in like business to business, that is a cushy job with easy hours at most places. It's a gross generalization compared to gaming, which is grueling, long hours, um, uncertain work, an industry that's rife with layoffs and job insecurity. Your engineering teams want to build games and they're not lazy. Assume good intent is is a uh, a phrase that you know was uh, hammered into me um, mm-hmm. at network and helped make me a better person in my work life and and outside of my work life, and uh, I think that's that's part of what what you're um, hitting on, and yeah, and I think it's it's it can be useful for development director and schedule people to really understand like how freaking impossible it is to come up with a good estimate for how long an engineering mm-hmm. task is going to take. Like before an engineer actually sits down and starts going through code and trying to make it work, there can be any number of unexpected pitfalls. In the technical design, you assumed that a subsystem worked a certain way, but it didn't. This other subsystem had a completely unexpected bug. The engineer thought they were doing something straightforward, but they ran into an issue with the game engine that you're using, right? There are any number of things that can cause the estimates to be horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And on engineering, unlike other disciplines, it's a lot harder to kind of chop off a body of work to fit into a schedule. If you're mm-hmm. an artist building you know, a character, you can probably chop off that last 10, 15% of iteration, it won't be as good, but it'll probably still work. Same thing with the game design document, right? You could just stop continuing to think about and iterate on the design and say that this is good enough. Engineering is a lot harder to do that because the outcome is very binary. Like it works or it doesn't. And if it isn't working, it's really hard to constrain the schedule if things are running over. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I mean, literally to thinking of the things that I was doing in the past five days, I mean, there's a comment in my code that's like, oh, you could definitely do this hold to jump higher better, but for this MVP, it's not going to make a difference, right? Like this happens all the time in, in, if, in the content side, right? Like I could make this character bio 50% better or I could make the way this jump feels better, but it's not important right now. It's really easy for me to make those types of, of mental decisions because it's Friday and I want to go home for family movie night or whatever it is. And uh, when you're dealing with something where it works or it doesn't work, you know, someone can put their best, smartest effort in till three in the morning till they're literally bleeding out of the eye holes and it still doesn't work and there's nothing you know there's nothing to do but get sleep come back to it and talk to other people and try and find a solution um on the leadership side oh go ahead real quick one other thing that uh you just touched on this comes back to the importance that i feel of group technical design sessions is a lot of times they're when you're designing the system, there are these nice to have things like how good does the jump feel? And by Mm -hmm. having those discussions as a group, the engineering team will also get an intuition of 
if there is any wiggle, wiggle room to reduce complexity if we're behind, where is that in the technical design? What are the critical parts that have to be done versus some areas where, well, we'd like to do this fancy matchmaking algorithm, but if we run low on time, here are the ways that we'll simplify it and it'll still be good enough. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I mean, this, I could literally go for probably two more hours without stopping if, um, family and, and, uh, other things were not a constraint. This is, this has been amazing. Um, I'm learning in real time from someone I used to work with every day for years. Like it's, this just incredible conversation. Um, I'll say this has actually been really great for me. Like I, I don't often stop and reflect on these sorts of things. So, you know, there's that old adage that you don't really understand something until you teach it to somebody else. I feel like, mm -hmm. thank you for reaching out to me and going through these questions and reflecting on a lot of these topics has given me a lot of internal clarity. So thank you. Awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're enjoying it and not just doing a favor you regretted <laughs> to somebody. Um, the one I'll, I'll close on, because we've talked a lot about soft skills, about empathy, about the uh, behaviors and interactions that can create a toxic work environment. Um, and I talk, I end up talking on the show a lot about culture and process. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, the end, the engineering is the engine that moves game development forward. So if I'm listening to this and I am a studio leader or a company leader or a game team leader, or even just, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a leader in title to have an important role of setting culture on a team. Um, so if, if I think, hey, it's important, you know, I feel like my game team has gotten toxic for, for reason X or Y. You know, to just to give an example that has totally never happened ever. Let's say Ethan and James had a stupid fight about a corner of a game feature that doesn't matter. And they're both grumpy. It's been three weeks and they're still grumpy because they're bullheaded idiots that are very similar to each other. Right. Something that's never happened ever, yeah. ever. Not this um, week. Not <laughs> right. Not in the year since you've left. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what what are the types of things that I can do to help keep my team happy and productive to prevent toxicity or fight against toxicity or reset? Like, I mean, it's just like, how can I have what, what can I do? What tips do you have for producers and team leads on how to lead a good vibes team? Right. Mm -hmm. Because as you've said, many like the shit rolls down the hill to engineering because it either works or it doesn't. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as you can to stem it off before it becomes an issue, like that's paramount. It, it's really difficult to repair a toxic culture once it's gotten there. There are certain people who can, but a lot of people hold grudges that'll never kind of repair it and there are situations where it can be repaired, but but a lot of times it's unfortunate. But when culture gets bad, I think a lot of times people do need to be moved between projects, need to be separated. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a controversial opinion, and uh, but that, in, except in uncommon cases, I think that, that that's true. 
I think that what you can do to keep culture positive is celebrate wins, right? Try to turn things into water under the bridge. The creative process is messy and bloody, but by being very deliberate to celebrate the successes, when the feature is done, all of the past crimes are forgotten. Look at what we built together. That's a great piece of advice to end on. Um, James, this has been a tremendous uh, hour and a half, uh, a great uh, piece of audio, a lot of learning. I think anybody who listened to this all the way through, um, no matter what their discipline, is, is going to walk away not only with a better understanding of what a game engineer's actual job is actually like, but how to improve um, process, workflow, personal behavior, team behavior uh, on any game team they're a part of. So thank you so much for coming on and for sharing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ethan. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.